Sometimes it might feel like it's taking forever for you to accomplish a goal. But just know, you're snailing it. Much like the S in Island, the laughter is silent. Hey everyone, Devin Boker here. And you're listening to The Wildlife, a podcast from two brothers that explores nature's untold stories and wild secrets. And if you've been listening or paying attention on our social media, you also now know that we're not just a podcast anymore. No, we are a nonprofit organization officially doing some pretty cool stuff. Before we get into it, a big shout out and I love you to our patrons at patreon.com slash the wildlife and our donators at paypal.me slash the wildlife. Our other half of the symbiotic relationship that is this show. So, the biggest of thank yous to Andrea Lloyd, Chris Trankel, Angela Seiberg, Bridget Fitzgerald, Christina Boker, Maria Hancocks, Matt Capel, Megan Gariani, Mike Henry, Vikram Baligi, Whitney Vanivier, Zach Stadnick, Gabriel Blinsky, Kimiak, Kim Drelay, Karen Bergman, and Tara Peterson. We could not do this without you. Also, major shout out to the folks over at Petri Dish Podcast for being perhaps the most selfless podcast peeps out there and for constantly sharing our show among many, many others, with folks on Twitter looking for recommendations. Go and give them a listen. Thank you also to everyone who helps to support the show by wearing our merch, which you can find at thewildlife.blog shop. And those of you who continue to subscribe, rate, and leave reviews on uh, Apple Podcast, Podchaser, or, or wherever you're doing so, we are at the existential mercy of these ratings and reviews. It helps us to keep us up in the charts. It helps to make us more visible. It helps to bring more people in on the fun. And and it gives us that external validation that we so desperately need. Our guest for the day has one of the coolest jobs on earth in perhaps one of the coolest places on earth. He's full of stories and knowledge and passion for little creatures that so many would overlook. He will have you wooed by the end of the episode as a lifelong ardent snail enthusiast, nay, lover. Richard and I spoke to him back in late May, and it was so much more than we bargained for. Now you might be wondering, what are we talking about today? Well, mostly islands, a word that has its roots in Proto-Indo-European, a really ancient language, uh, from a word that basically means like thing on the water. But as it turns out, islands are much, much more than that. Something that has caused a near existential crisis on our end, and you will continually hear about throughout the episode. No doubtly hitting skip 30 every time it begins. Today's guest is an adjunct assistant professor at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska, which you might be wondering, where are the islands? Aren't they known for stakes? He received his BA bachelor's uh, at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. Lots of saints in uh, Minnesota. And his PhD at Iowa State University. We talk islands, upside down tortoises, rafting, Judas goats, a morphological menagerie of snails, cities, clever birds, the Galapagos, and so much more. So grab some dessert and get isolated for our interview with Dr. Andrew Kramer. Um, okay, well, uh, how, how long have you been studying islands? 
Uh, well, uh, I have uh, been officially studying islands since I finished with my PhD, so 2014. Um, at that point, I started a postdoc with Christine Parent over at the University of Idaho, and that's officially when I started studying islands. But really, um, I think I was kind of on that trajectory to work on islands ever since I decided to study populations. Sure. Um, when you are trying to understand how populations uh, can evolve and respond to environmental conditions and that sort of thing, it's a lot easier to understand it when you know kind of the, the limits of the system yeah. and the boundaries. And that's why a lot of that type of ecological and evolutionary research happens on islands, because it's it's easier in a lot of ways. So Okay, okay, okay. Sort of like a, a self-contained lab sort of, I guess. <laughs> exactly. That's what we say, you know, in, in islands, they're, they're like petri dishes of evolution, uh, just at a much larger scale. So this, this is something that I feel like, uh, for most people feels like it should be a pretty uh, straightforward answer. But my understanding from what I remember on the topic back in the day, usually in relation to plants and things, um, is an island isn't exactly what we all think an island is is that accurate to say <laughs> so when you want to know what an island is it depends on who you ask you will get a different answer okay right so you know ask a travel agent it probably has to have some sand and palm trees and that sort of thing for me as an evolutionary ecologist i when I hear the word island, I think of a patch of habitat that is very different from the surrounding patches of habitat. And okay. so in that way, you can have, you know, isolated stands of trees on a prairie, and that acts like an island in a lot of ways. The mm. species that you find in that little patch, they're not going to be found in the intervening matrix, that space around it. And so it's the same way with traditional islands as well. But for aquatic things... A pond or a lake can be an island of sorts, at least from their perspective. It's like a reverse. <laughs> so uh, like your like your prototypical oasis in the middle of the desert, it's kind of like a flip-flopped what you normally expect uh, a, a, an island to be. Okay. Um, other examples of islands. Uh, uh, a castle with a lava moat. Okay, but that's that's like or uh, just a regular moat but that's that's like that's act like that's like an island like a volcano surrounded with lava all of these are just things surrounded like, by liquid like the, what are the some castle other and shrek with the lava lake but it's still okay okay but that's still just like a solid something surrounded by a liquid something which i mean you're right it's an island but what's like an unexpected island like one that's not an obvious island uh, a rock. Uh, a, a patch of bedrock. So you're saying a, a statue in the middle of a fountain is an island? Okay, but that's literally that's a solid object surrounded by water. Okay, <laughs> you're doing this on purpose, I swear. Um. Uh. 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 Wait, is like a cell nucleus an island? 
What about when I'm at work and I'm surrounded by Karens? <laughs> You're on an island of isolation. Just yourself with the Karens. Makes sense. Um, hmm. Like the... Uh, uh, you ever do you ever call it I don't know if this is regional but when when you're in your kitchen you have the island oh yeah yeah, yeah just yeah. like that square of counter like yeah. in the middle of the kitchen but I think that's because people are like oh it's sep- like it's a separated part of the counter but I guess you're saying like it's different from the floor it's granite surrounded by wood oh an island oh my god I see what you're getting at lakes and ponds are reverse island. That wasn't a liquid. Oh, yeah, yeah. I said, aha, aha. Finally. Okay. Cool. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same idea. The same evolutionary and ecological processes are happening in oases in a lot of ways as in an island in the Pacific. Okay. Okay. So how big uh, can something get and you still... uh, technically count it as an island like what what would you say about uh like greenland or even australia like being called an island yeah that is exactly the the arbitrary boundary we've set so it (laughs) it, a lot of it really depends on historic you know the history of it greenland i don't know it hasn't had a huge human population and it hasn't played a lot of geopolitical uh roles in, in, in at least um, in uh, in in the human history and so you know Greenland is thought of as lesser than Australia <laughs> to history it, you might want to get yeah. that part out yeah you hear that Greenland <laughs> but anyway uh, so as it turns out Greenland actually like has people in it like there's 56,000 people there which I don't I mean, know I just thought it doesn't even count well you always hear like, okay, so I know like Greenland is white, but and like icy, but Iceland is like fairly green, and so it's always like, why is it Greenland and Iceland? But I always thought of Greenland as just kind of like this desolate place. But I mean, and also I will say it was slightly so. <laughs> yes, okay, he didn't mean to say lesser, not like Greenland sucks, but like, I mean, as far as like geopolitical stuff, right? Okay. However, if you remember, like last year in the news, Trump was like trying to just tell Denmark, like, hey, just give us Greenland because we could use it for stuff. And Denmark's like, no, we're not going to just give you Greenland. He's like, we'll buy it. Like, you know, you can just trade it like Monopoly cards. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll give you Broadway for Greenland. Oh, OK. How much for Park Place? <laughs> How much for Park Place? Um, now this is actually, uh, so you probably have seen Greenland on a map and it looks huge. And what was weird to me is when we were talking about the difference between like, okay, Australia is a continent. It's too big to be an Island, blah, blah, blah. Well, when you look at a map, it, I don't know, it, the traditional map, it almost looks like Iceland or I mean, Greenland is bigger than Australia, but that's because the map that we mostly know it's based on the Mercator projection, uh, is hugely, hugely distorted. Like North America is like the biggest spot on the map. Yet yet Africa is four times the size of North America. Like the entirety of North America you could fit into Africa four times. 
yet Africa and South America are like why are we teaching all of our kids small. geography wrong? Like I I didn't have any I I've just my whole life of like I thought Africa was a lot smaller. Oh no, oh no, it's massive. Yeah, yeah. So like Australia is considered a continent, mm-hmm. Greenland is considered an island. So if you want to find a boundary, it's probably somewhere in there. Uh, Australia is only about three and a half times bigger than Greenland, um, but it is considered a continent. Um, India, for a long time, was its own continent. But now that it's jammed up against the rest of Asia, uh, you know, it's lost that status in, in, uh, in our perspective. And so it depends on when you ask the question and who you, who you ask. Um, but it's, it is pretty arbitrary. Okay. Okay. Like, like a lot of things in science, it feels like it's kind of a definitions aren't as cut and dry as, as you might expect. So on the flip side of that, then, um, if, if we're talking in terms of like smallness, I mean, how, how, like how small, uh, can something be and still be considered an island? Sure. Uh, well, you know, and, as I was saying before, that also depends on who you ask. Um, from my perspective as a biologist, uh, the dynamics and how things act on islands, um, that is depends a lot on scale. And so with really, really small islands, um, the type of evolutionary processes that we see on continents, they don't act because they just don't have time to before populations go extinct. Sure. Um, so there are limits to the types of processes that happen on an island of different sizes. Um, but in if you're asking someone who studies populations and you know interactions among species, you could consider a patch of of soil, you know, with uh, you know those those um, um, bacterial. Um, mats of of different bacterial populations on the surfaces of clay particles and those act as islands in some way uh within that soil matrix i'm sort of mad at dr kramer for that one because like my entire perception of reality and what an island is like it was already flipped a little bit with like okay like reverse islands and things being islands just because they're different than the surroundings but like literally down to the scale of like so okay so what the heck like you don't you're talking about oh why are you learning geography why what the heck you have to learn an island is a land mass micro floating in the water and then you learn about a peninsula and an isthmus which i can never say I correctly never remember what that one is. you know the isthmus i don't remember either bismuth no 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 not bismuth bismuth is it's a know. whole other interesting thing about bismuth you know that's in Pepto Bismol? Yeah. That's what Bismol, Bismuth. Yeah. 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 Super cool. But like, then like, what's the biggest? And I, well, no, we already figured that out because then eventually, I guess at some point between Greenland and Australia, Earth it's just like is an island because it's Earth surrounded by space. Whoa! Wait, and then like the Milky Way. 
is an island. But my God. But okay, well that's just confusing. So if you have an island, Greenland's an island, Australia's a continent. Well, everything in Milky, the island? Milky Way is like really far apart. Oh, so you're just okay. Too much space. Okay, so you're saying so in that context. Say, okay, Earth is an island. Okay, Earth is an island. Earth is an island. Earth is an island. Earth, Earth is an island. The moon is an island. You're on a holiday. Mm, I, I mean, know. if you want to bring the size argument into it, then at least the moon is an island. You know, one thing we didn't ask him are about islands in the stream. Because that is what we are. What? Islands in the stream. That is what we are. I don't, I don't the Dolly Parton song with... Okay. Um. So... Again, it, it really depends on your sense of scale. Sure. And your what it is that you're trying to learn about whether you should consider it an island or not. Um, I don't know of any official designation of, you know, when you get this small, it's not really an island anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there are island-like features to the things of, of a whole range of sizes from really, really small to really, really big. See... The reason the reason I ask those questions is um, I don't know I I always am kind of like I I get awestruck about islands because um, like even so even locally in in the Mississippi River we have a, a chain of islands called the Beaver Island chain and each island when you actually go out and kind of explore them they feel different like they're they're different it's it there's like little variances in between them even though they're all kind of close together but there's just something about like um, you know, the unexpected and how like things kind of act a little bit differently. It feels like, um, on an Island. And one thing that I can't help, but always notice mm -hmm. is like organisms seem at least, at least more so in the tropical areas, I guess not so much, uh, elsewhere, but they seem almost like they're evolutionarily supercharged. Yeah. Like they, they're like the X-Men of the natural world with all these extra adaptations and their colorations and the ways that they communicate. Um, but even even like uh, uh, Isle Royale, uh, I, I I like to believe it's part of Minnesota, even though I know Michigan claims it. But I'm just saying it's it's closer. Um, <laughs> but but you know, I'm even from there, Wisconsin, so I think that Isle Royale is it belongs to Wisconsin too. Oh, so I, I see, I see. Kind of <laughs> got a whole thing. Um, but like even even there, you know, the the dynamics between the wolf and the moose are are always kind of like this influx dramatic race towards balance that they can't ever really seem to quite achieve. Is that something that's kind of a, a fairly consistent thing that you see across island ecosystems, I guess, in the, in the traditional sense? So, yeah, uh, there's, there's a lot there. Um, islands are, are really special, right? They, there, there are things that are happening on islands that um, you do not see at the same frequency in other places. And that it happens for a lot of different reasons. Uh, when it comes to seeing populations change through time, like what happens in Isle Royale with the with the moose and the, and the wolves, um, a lot of that is because you have rather relatively small populations on those islands, and so you have the same sort of, like the the carrying capacity on that island is relatively low, sure. in terms of large mammals like that, and so you can have you know a, a boom of a population for moose that goes way above the carrying capacity of i don't know how many how many moose uh and that can then you know allows wolves to reproduce and then they can 
make that moose population crash rather quickly just because all of this is happening in a cramped space. Sure. And you see that a lot on small islands, these sort of cycles of populations. Um, so that's why it's really important for an ecologist to study little patches like you have on rather small islands. But when you talk about how the, you have these really strange species on islands, especially in, in oceanic islands that are rather isolated, this happens because of their isolation. It's just, it's a rare event when a species manages to land on that little patch and become established. And so you have somewhat lower species diversity as a result of colonization mm -hmm. from the nearest continent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then you have this huge open space for that, that population. You may have no birds on an island. You have this one random finch-like thing landing, <laughs> getting blown over by a or whatever. And it evolves to fit all these little niches here and there. Yeah. And that's how you end up with the honeycreepers in Hawaii, right? You have things that look like, or, or at least ecologically, fit the role of hummingbirds and um, seed-eating plants and insectivores. And you just have all, or seed-eating um, um, birds. And, and you just have all these different types of, of species that have evolved to fit into all these different little pockets of um, ecological space that's just really impressive because there was no competition there. And this is something that you see in a lot of old islands that are isolated from continents. And that's why you have all these really wild things happening on those places. Okay, we had to look this up. Um, an estimated 20% of the world's species, 20% of um, uh, birds, reptiles, and plant species live on islands. That's a lot. Yeah, like 20% on islands. But again, like, I mean, we could, we could talk all about scale. I mean, we could say, oh, you mean islands in the ocean? Well, what about things in lakes? And then you could be like, well, 100% of things live on islands because every single habitat is kind of like its own island and every niche is an island and every... <sighs> I'm taking this too far. Yeah. Yeah. 20% is a lot more diverse than just a handful of things you might tend to think of, like coconuts. Coconuts, yeah. And People are like, oh, coconuts, iguanas. Uh, big turtles. A bird. A bird or something. Like a colorful bird. Just hanging out. You know, Darwin's finches. Doing a dance. Darwin's finches. We'll get there. Okay. So in the traditional sense of islands, pieces of land in the water, not floating, by the way. I learned this. Some people think that islands are like floating. What? Like, like a pool floaty? No. No, no, no. It's like a mountain sticking out the water. It's a whole thing. It's just the top of the mountain. Yeah. Yeah. But like some people are like, oh, it's like a, it's a pool floaty. Everyone's just hanging it's out. That's floating, why, the one that's that why people kind of party all, all over the place. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Well, that's where tectonic plates. No, no. No! No! No. No. No, not at all. No. Mm -hmm. So, uh, how is, is, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> so, I, I've seen uh, a lot of, and in, in what I teach, when I teach in biology and we talk about natural selection and stuff, we, 
um, often look at these really weird examples of like giant owls or, or giant hamsters or dwarf mammoths where like really I big things get really small and then really small things have a tendency to get bigger. So is that is that sort of the um, uh, so small things are able to get bigger because there's less competition from other species like can you explain that? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep, no, that is that you're you're on the right track there. So, uh, for for a lot of species um when they land in a place, um the way that that particular species fits into its environment back home, it doesn't fit perfectly in this new place. And so there's evolutionary pressure for the to change and as long as there is the genetic variation mm -hmm. and the ability for them to adapt and the time for them to adapt they will adapt to fit that environment a little better now what that means for a particular species on a particular island it really varies sure uh but uh and and, and i think that there are a lot of little things that are very different among these these different scenarios but I think generally speaking, if you have a species that was really big on the continent, gets out to an island, it probably can't be as big and succeed like the mammoths, mm -hmm. right? So you can't have a population. There aren't the resources available for uh, a large population of mammoths on a relatively small island. And so the ones that are smaller reproduce earlier. Uh, at a smaller size, perhaps they do better. And perhaps that's why they've evolved to become smaller over time. On the other hand, like you said, those species editors, and so they evolved to be larger. And um, I think that is one of the reasons why you see really small things get a little bigger on islands and really big things get a little smaller. Uh, but a lot of that depends on what is going on in that place at that time for that species. Sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And um, back to a little more uh, general, uh, generally about um, island ecology. Um, to you, uh, what what's the biggest thing uh, to you that you'd say uh, makes this particular area uh, so interesting to study? So I am I'm interested in how biodiversity evolves. And so, you know, I'm, if you go to a patch of rainforest in South America, there's a lot of biodiversity there. Yeah. And there are tons of species with lots of different phenotypes and the way that they interact with each other is really complicated. So you go there as a an ecological tourist and you just look around in awe because it's just so cool. <laughs> but it's really hard to study that uh, because for a lot of reasons, those environments are ancient. And so the different interactions among species is old. Yeah. On islands, especially the ones that I study, Galapagos, those islands are pretty young. And so they have not had as much time to evolve in a way that, you know, the, the, the way that they came together and the way that that biodiversity first evolved, like the, the signal of that, how that first showed up, that, that variety. Um, it gets kind of obfuscated and, and obscured by time on continents. And you do not always have that on the, the young islands like those that I study. And so, so I, I think they're just really, really great to, as the place to study evolution and ecology 
because they're so young in a lot of cases. So you, you study in the Galapagos, like you said, um, which, mm-hmm. uh, first off, I cannot tell you how envious <laughs> I am. I, it is an absolute dream to be able to get there someday, uh, to visit. And, and I've seen different opportunities like with teaching come up where you can do like these odd, like trips to learn some stuff about next generation science or whatever. Um, that aside, um, uh, I'm, that's, that's one of the big reasons that we wanted to get in touch is to, to talk about that. And of course, of course, the snails, um, but also you said, you said that they're relatively young. So how old are the Galapagos? Are, is, how old? Either one. I'm not sure which it is. <laughs> sure. All of the above. Uh, so the, it, it depends. I'm, I'm saying this a lot today. It depends. Uh, so the youngest major island in Galapagos is about 60,000 years old. It's Fernandina. Oh, wow. Um, it's way out in the west end of the archipelago. Uh, the young, or the oldest one is, um, I'd say, Española is probably the oldest, but the, the two oldest ones have kind of the same age, so we're not exactly sure. Uh, and that one's about 3.2 million years old. Hmm. That said, the Galapagos archipelago has been around for longer than that. Uh, And so the way that these types of islands are formed is because you have a a tectonic plate that's moving over a hotspot in the Earth's uh, mantle. Okay. And as as that crust moves over that hotspot, periodically, the, the, um, the hotspot pokes through and you get the birth of a new island. Oh. And it then the crust, the, the plate moves off, moves that island off of the hotspot, and the island starts to wear away and subside, and eventually it dips back below the ocean. And so you have this conveyor belt of islands. And huh. so I think the archipelago itself is around 10 million years old, but I'm, I don't remember for sure. I have to double check that. Uh, but it's been around for a little while. Uh, but the oldest surviving island right now is about 3.2 million years old. Mm-hmm. Jeez. Yeah. Um, one, one thing I've always thought uh, was crazy about uh, places like this, I, I uh, don't even know where to begin. Um, I, I kind of understand how uh, life might uh, begin uh, at first with you know uh, seeds blowing over or birds flying there. But other other larger animals, like how how did the tortoises get get there, <laughs> or the marine tortoises are tough, or... man. it's um it's 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 tough uh, to to conceive of how some of these creatures first arrived, uh, and I think the mode of transport really varies quite a lot, right? So a lot of the birds, yeah, they flew over. That's how they got there. Uh, um, for the terrestrial species that either cannot fly that far or have no ability to disperse it, um, that far in a, in a normal way, we think that they were either carried along by another species that was moving, um, and I can get to that a little later, or one of the more common routes is through rafting, where you have maybe a landslide along the coast on the continent, uh, or a hurricane blows some debris out into the ocean, and eventually it 
just kind of makes its way to the island. And those organisms that are present on that raft uh, are able to make it to shore that way. So floating islands. Technically, there are floating yeah, islands. Yeah, there are some floating islands. And now that I think about it, like every once in a while on the news in like the spring especially or the summer, it's like, uh, you know, uh, runaway floating bog is making its way across a lake and then it like smashes into the land and destroys somebody's yard at their cabin that's actually technically a second house. But for whatever reason, Minnesotans, privileged Minnesotans have, a, you know, a second house and they're like, oh, it's a cabin. And it's like... No, this is literally a second house. Or the floating trash island. Yeah, or like the yeah, like the Pacific garbage patch. It's an island. It is. Yeah. Okay. I'm is it. is a is a cruise ship an island? A cruise ship. It's got its own like ecosystem going on. Yeah. Yeah, I think a cruise ship would be an island. When you um when you poop in the toilet. It's an island. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's probably how the tortoises arrived. Um, they're pretty tough, and um, this is a whole nother topic. But uh, buccaneers used to uh, collect tortoises um, in Galapagos and would, you know, take them. Which they're these giant Galapagos tortoises are, are, you know, a few hundred pounds. So once you can lug one onto your ship, what they would do is they flip them over under their backs, which is horse about um but those tortoises would survive for upwards of a year uh without any food or water which is a lot easier for keeping um for those mariners uh for food than goats which require food and water on a regular basis um so that's what they ended up doing and i eventually what they would do is when they got sick of the, the tortoise meat they chuck them overboard and some of those individuals were able to make it back to shore and oh survive uh, which is really remarkable yeah they're really tough wow. um they're they're very impressive organisms for sure that's kind of just like a, a harrowing story like from the perspective of the tortoise to be kidnapped and placed upside down for, for a year thrown overboard makes its way back to an island that's just crazy oh geez right? You know, I have to I have to pick up my wife for a moment. She uh, there's a, a something recently that was talking about more evidence that um, the ancestor of lemurs must have rafted to Madagascar, and um, and she what they made rafts like she like like as in they built rafts and then took them across the and I'm like well no 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 no, no, no. <laughs> not not quite but close okay uh. Yeah. So, so, um, what, what are, I guess, what are, if you, if you were to just, um, to, to, uh, throw out, I guess, like the Pokédex, if you will, of, um, the Galapagos for, for people who aren't maybe necessarily fully familiar with anything other than the tortoises. I mean, what are, what are like the, the typical wildlife that you would find there? Uh, so the easiest way to do that is to start on shore by the ocean. And to just the Galapagos Islands, especially the younger ones, are kind of cone-shaped. And so they have kind of a one central peak, and then it kind of uh, moves uh, downward as you get towards the coast. So around the, the littoral zone, which is the area right by the, the ocean itself, 
You yeah. get a lot of salt spray and it's pretty salty habitat. So the species that you find there are very different from the ones that you find inland. And this littoral zone is where you see a lot of the, the species that people who think of Galapagos tend to think of. Sure. Um, so you, you have blue-footed boobies, you may have uh, some of the penguins, uh, cor the flightless cormorants, um, and of course the marine iguanas and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's And there's some really cool stuff there. As you go in inland, when you're still at really low elevation, it's incredibly dry. There's hardly any fresh water on the islands themselves. It's one of the reasons why they weren't um, really colonized by people until relatively recently. But anyway, it's really dry, really arid. Most of the plants do not have any, uh, any, any leaves on them most of the year. Uh, you have these big Apuntia prickly pear cactus trees. And most of the other plants have pretty, actually almost all of the plants have thorns at that elevation. Hmm. I think this is one of the reasons why Darwin didn't really like Galapagos when he was hmm. there. <laughs> and uh, he writes about that quite often, just how miserable the place was. <laughs> he called the, the iguanas imps of darkness. <laughs> Which fantastic band name. But, I know, right? Uh, that's, Someone got that's tires a little of bit tortoise of tortoise meat. <laughs> tires of tortoise yeah. meat. So um, so that that area, um, it's interesting. There's a lot of really cool species there, uh, but it's not terribly comfortable. Uh, so as you go up though, as you move up the island, it gets a little bit cooler, a little bit more humid. And the vegetation starts to change. And a lot of this is because, you know, as, as you go up, as the, the air from the ocean, it's really humid and, and hot. Um, as it gets pushed up over the, the top of the mountain, it gets cooler and, and, and drops its moist. So it ends up being wetter at higher elevations. And this is generally, as you go up there, you start to get into the transition zone. And eventually you get into the humid zone. And this is where you see some of the really cool species, like the giant tortoises. And they wander around foraging in this area. Uh, they actually do migrations every year. So oh, really? when it comes to breeding and laying eggs, they actually go downslope to where it's drier. And that's where they dig their nests. And hmm. then they go back upslope to forage the rest of the year. And so they have these big paths up and down the mountain. And so you can follow this path. As you go up, when it gets humid, this is where you find scalacea trees. And these forests are really strange. Uh, scalacea is a tree that is in the aster family. So they're related to sunflowers and asters and daisies and things. Yeah. These tiny uh. little amomile-like flowers, which are really cool. And uh, they're really pretty. As you go higher, you may get into what is called the Pampa. And this is a grassland where you, it, you may actually get to a point where it starts to get drier as you get above the cloud layer, um, but that's only on the, the, the very highest islands of the young volcanoes. Um, but throughout all of this, from the littoral zone all the way up to the top, there are other species that are kind of ever-present. So there's the Galapagos hawks, the Galapagos mockingbirds, Darwin's finches, of course, are all over, everywhere. 
And if you're really lucky, you may see some Galapagos snails, which can be found on almost every surface. Uh, not, they're not that common, but they can be found anywhere uh, except the littoral zone. Um, these snails are terrestrial, and so you can find them. They have lots of little habitats that each species specializes in. And so there's just a lot of variation there, a lot of diversity. Uh, and it's it's fun to to explore that if anyone ever gets the opportunity. Uh, and I'm very lucky in that regard. Very fortunate. Yes. <laughs> Incredibly. So you said uh you said people um people didn't colonize the islands until relatively recently. So when when Darwin and like the Beagle, when they were there, um was it already populated for, for the most part or Yes and no. So uh, it was, I actually looked this up before this, this interview because I was curious myself. It was, uh, it was officially discovered in 1535, um, but really no one lived there after that point. Because as I said, there's really not a whole lot of water sure. until the early 1800s. Um, and even then it was just sporadic, like someone would get marooned there for a couple of years <laughs> there, and that was pretty much it. Um, in 1820, so there were people there enough that in 1820, there was actually a fire on one of the islands and it almost burned the entire island. Oh, geez. Uh, yeah. And that was the island that had the what was called the post office. Uh, and it was just a barrel and <laughs> buccaneers and whalers would toss a letter in the barrel uh, as they're passing by. And whoever was going from the islands to the mainland to the nearest city, Guayaquil, um, they, they would go and fish out all of the letters and take those to the, the the post office, the official post office in Guayaquil. And so they have like, the, there's a lot of history right there. That's kind of cool. So we looked up uh, the Galapagos post office and like, it's still around. I mean, it's not so much a bit. Well, I mean, it's actually, yeah, it, it's a barrel on a stick like a state fair food and it has a uh, little little roof kind of a thing and it's surrounded by like discarded wood and the sides of crates and driftwood and uh, it's like a whole it kind of looks like you know somebody's yard when you're like driving through like the middle of nowhere Oklahoma imagine just like coming by this island and dropping a letter off middle of nowhere just hoping Someone would pick it up that happened to be going to the town you wanted to be sent to. Yeah. Imagine it might be like months. Yeah. It, it kind of looks like, uh, um, you know, like when you have that person in the neighborhood who's just like really into antiques and the yard's full of just unusual stuff. Like they got the toilet. They've got a tub. A toilet. Like a washing pot. machine. A bunch of like sculptures made out of iron signs in abundance of bird feeders. Yeah. You know, they got all that. It yeah. reminds me of that. Yeah. 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 It kind of looks like that but it's a, it's a post office. Um, yeah. But yeah, when Darwin was there, there was probably only a, a handful of people there, if any, uh, and that was only in a very temporary way. Yeah. So how, um, and, and the closest, uh, oh, and, uh, uh, when people actually, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say the closest um, um, mainland country is Ecuador, right? Or is the Galapagos a part of Ecuador? Okay. Yep. Yep, it's it's like it's its own state, I believe. Oh, okay, okay, okay. That makes sense. Yep, or probably. How has um how has I, I I've heard a few different things, and and one of the uh, 
pretty much the the consensus is that um, a lot of the biodiversity of the Galapagos is being severely impacted by a lot of different things. How how has I know that's such like a big, broad, multifaceted question with really no straightforward answer. But how has um, human presence impacted uh, ecosystems in the Galapagos? Uh, it 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 there really has been a lot of, of influence by by uh, humans. Um, as I said, there hasn't been a lot of people in Galapagos until recently. So it as a as a set of ecosystems is much more intact than places like Hawaii, which have been in, in large part replaced by non-native vegetation and species in a lot of places. Galapagos is still pretty wild, um, but there are a lot of problems and a lot of challenges um, that are imposed by human populations. So Galapagos has a little over 25,000 people in it, uh, and that's mostly in a couple of, of uh, towns on a couple of the islands. Yep. Uh, so only four of the islands out of the 12 to 15 major islands, um, only four of them have any permanent human populations on them. So the rest of the islands are pretty intact, um, except for some invasive species here and there. Um, but in those places where you do have human populations, you have agricultural areas that have replaced a lot of the humid zone habitat. And that's where you have the biggest problems of invasive species and decline of local species. Okay. Um, so this is one we, we wanted to get a little bit more specific on. So we went to a, uh, a website on invasive species and biosecurity in the Galapagos, and we found, and we'll link to that in the episode notes, but we found that there are around 700 non-native invasive plants in the Galapagos, 550 species of introduced insects, 13 introduced mammal species, uh, including dogs, cats, pigs, rats, and goats, which you're going to hear a lot about. Um, but on top of that, I'd say the biggest challenges for native species are um, the invasive blackberries and, until recently, goats. Yeah, tell me, um, I, I, I kind of, yeah, I do want to spend a, a really, you know, 30 seconds or whatever on these goats, because I, I've, I heard something kind of remarkable about this whole goat situation. So the goats are, they were an interesting problem and a very interesting, there was a, an interesting resolution to that problem. Uh, so the goats were introduced uh, around the time of the buccaneers and the whalers. Um, as I said, they tossed goats ashore, grabbed tortoises, and every once in a while would swap them out as they got tired of that one type of meat. And so the goats established populations on most of the islands. And um, in case uh, you haven't heard, goats are very efficient at eating anything. <laughs> yep. And so they mowed down the vegetation in the humid zones of most of the islands until it got to the point where there were some places where you'd walk across the landscape. Um, and it was it was like walking across a, a freshly mown lawn. Oh, wow. That's so really wow. short vegetation. Yeah. Uh, and so that was that was really rough. And it was like that up until um the 90s and at that point there was a group called island conservation 
and the um, the national park uh, itself in Galapagos, uh, they got together and worked to eradicate the goats. And it was it was a pretty rough business for a number of years because there were about a hundred thousand goats uh, on the islands at that time, and they had to get rid of all of them. And the only way to efficiently do that is to shoot them. So there's a lot of challenges with that and, you know, ethical considerations, but um, the decision was made that it was more important to remove the goats um, for, um, for all those native species that they were impacting, including the tortoises and yeah. um, just about everything else. So yeah. uh, it was easy to, um, to remove the first 90% of those goats, but after that point, when those goats started to get really rare, uh, it's really hard to find the last few. And mm -hmm. as long as there is a, you know, a, a female and a male on an island, they can re repopulate. And so that was a real problem. They had to get the last few. And so what they did was they, uh, they radio collar around a goat. Uh, and after all, they gave her some injection that uh, m made her produce the in-heat hormone, hormones, <gasps> pheromones. Oh, my. Um, oh, so my that, God. Um, the goats would gather around her. And they'd go and they'd remove all of the goats except oh for her. Oh, my God. And they would repeat. And they were it's able to get up. all of the goats that they called them Judas goats. Uh, oh, my God. So, yeah. <laughs> It's, it's pretty diabolical, but it did work. And now the most of the islands are free of goats entirely, except for those four islands where there are humans and human populations. Um, there are some uh, captive goat populations, but they're kept in check. Uh, and so you don't have the goat problem, problem anymore. Uh, and so um, as a result, those, those ecosystems have just rebounded and it's... It's amazing just how quickly those populations of, of plants and animals have recovered. Uh, and it's, it's been a, a, a really um, an important moment in the history of these, of these uh, islands for their conservation. Gosh, that's just, an, it's just insane to think about. I mean, it, it and it's, it's um, one of those things that I think a lot of people would have trouble wrapping their head around for, I think, some obvious reasons. But then there's the the conservation piece of, you know, it's sort of a greater good model of conservation of if we are going to be able to save the things that we need to save, then we're going to have mm -hmm. to make some decisions that are going to make people a little bit uncomfortable. Um, but that's just, like you said, I think you put it well, diabolical. So it's like sleeper agent goats. That's uh, <laughs> just, geez. Okay. <laughs> it's a it's a crazy story, but um, it, it really it shows just the the like you said the decisions that make to preserve these really unique ecosystems mm -hmm. that would otherwise disappear forever with without interventions like this. Um, so, yeah. Um, on that, on that, on that, uh, on that, um, surprisingly aggressive note, I think we need to process 
the whole goat thing for a moment. And so we're going to take a break. But when we get back, we're going to finally talk about the, uh, the critters at central focus of Dr. Kramer's work. It's pretty cool. And now, it is time for Edible Sound of the Week. So it's, uh, it's been a couple of weeks since Animal Sound of the Week because of, you know, there was like the whole thing with the mix-up and all that. And so we're starting a little bit fresh this time, looking forward to next week's episode, which thank goodness we did because um, first off, it's amazing. But second, it ties in nicely to this week's episode. And so uh, um, yet again, as has been consistently the case lately, next week's animal at the central focus doesn't necessarily make a sound so instead i'm going to um i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna, I'm gonna try it okay uh for context here uh looks like Devin is trying to do push-ups while flexing his neck out yep yep that's what i'm doing yeah okay <clears throat> a little disturbing okay so that's uh that's your hint for next week Submit your guesses on our social media, on Twitter at the Wildlife Pod. Email us at hello at thewildlife.blog or really anywhere else you find us on social media. And uh, if you get it right, you get a prize. Which, like, who doesn't love prizes? I mean, we do have some pretty sick-looking stickers, not going to lie. Yeah, I got a bunch of them from uh, Like, you could put it on your car or on your laptop like all the cool kids do these days. Yeah, just slap it right on the back there. Or if you have right like a trunk for some reason. Slap like the do. sticker on the back of your laptop like a used car salesman smacks the top of a car. Just with that amount of gusto. You know? Slaps car. Car slaps back. <gasps> now that's a new one. You bite the fry. The fry bites back. Equal and opposite reaction. If there's one car in a parking lot, is that car an island? Yes. Okay. All right. Yes, islands. Okay. Uh, now, we'll get back to it. I promise it's going to be great. Okay, okay, okay. I put okay. a screw into my drywall. Is the screw an island? Oh. Interesting. Or, like, just a picture hanging on the wall. Is that picture now an island? I think so. I think so. Google <laughs> search. Can islands be vertical? Vertical islands. We haven't even considered this yet. Two-dimensional island. <laughs> Okay, a bird flying in the sky. <laughs> Is it an, an island? island. <laughs> um, yes, so, uh, yes, on the island, on the island talk. Uh, uh, Dr. Kramer, yes, he studies on the Galapagos, and yes, he knows a butt-ton of stuff about islands and ecology, but there's one, uh, not one not one species, but one organism that is at his central focus right now. And um, when you hear about it, at first you're going to go, what? But I'm telling you, like, super cool. So this is um, um, kind of kind of the, uh, the the main event here. So so I I don't know if you saw before I had to turn off the camera for a moment, but I, I do have mm-hmm. these sketches. I'm blanking on the name of the artist. I know it wasn't Darwin himself who drew them, but I do have the Darwin finches, which also I believe are not technically finches, but they are um, on my arm, and I'm obsessed with them and the tortoises. Um, but they are not 
the only really fascinating example of adaptive radiation from the Galapagos. And you study the snails, which you said you could pretty much find just about anywhere, although they are rare. So um, did you say they are they on every island? Almost. Uh, there are uh, a few islands where you don't find any snails, uh, and that is mostly because these islands are really small. And uh, the smaller the island, generally speaking, the drier it is, the more arid. And the drier it is, the harder it is for a snail to make a living. Uh, and so you have kind of a, a minimum viable size where uh, snails can survive. Um, but really, every major island has either one or as many as a two dozen unique endemic species of land snails. So what is it uh, primarily about uh, these snails that you study? We are working on, so it's, it's myself and uh, Christine Parent at the University of Idaho and a number of other colleagues um, that are all studying this together. Uh, it's a big question, so or a number of questions, and so we're we're having to work together here, and it's it's a it's a fun system to work on. Uh, but what we are trying to understand is how they got to these different islands, so their evolutionary history traced through the islands, um, how they diversified from what we think is one original colonist to the um, between seventy and eighty species that are there now. And what, like how, not only how have we gotten from one to many species, but from one shape and one color and one, one morphology to the incredible diversity of phenotype in these snails, which is really cool. And, and ecology, because as I said, you can find them in the arid zone in the driest places. And you can also find them in the wettest places of Galapagos. And there's a lot of variation there. And they've also diversified in terms of shape. There are some that are really, really long and skinny, like pencils, Ooh. and others that are uh, what are called globose and just kind of really rounded in shape. Uh, and a lot of that variation in shape and in color uh, seems to be linked very closely with their their environments. So uh, and so they seem to to yeah. So are they are they um. Just to clarify, so are they the same species, just just morphologically different, or are they different species? They are all part of the same genus, so they're very oh, okay. closely related. Ooh. But there's um, uh, over 70 different species. Oh, and wow. so with the Galapagos finches, there's about a dozen species, and same thing with the tortoises, and we have several dozen um, snail species in Galapagos. And so you're looking at... Um how how their how their uh, variance is linked to the environment that that they live in yes sure so mm -hmm. how so how does um i i mean okay so like a long pencil shape like what what environment would that one live in as compared to a more globular snail mm -hmm. so the the easiest way to think about this is you have, so if you think about a snail shell, mm -hmm. um, you can think about a, a tube that is wrapped around some central axis, right? And so you can wrap the tube or you can do it a whole bunch of 
field of flint, so you have this long shell that um, you get out of it. Oh. Uh, but the more times that you wrap around that central axis, the more shell material you have to use for a particular um, sized animal that's inside of it, the snail itself. Mm-hmm. And so it takes a lot of resources to build a long shell. At the same time, if you want to make a short shell with just a couple of whorls, um, then you can have more snail for a certain amount of calcium to make that shell. But then just because of the, the, you know, the geometry of it, you end up with a really big opening mm. uh, where it's called the aperture, where the snail meets the outside. The larger the opening, the more water you tend to lose. Oh. Into your right. So uh, those species that have a, just a couple of whorls and they're really kind of squat, you find those in the humid zone. Those species that have long skinny shells that are really long and, and um, uh, drawn out, they have relatively small apertures and the, you find them in the arid zone. And so there's that kind of that trade-off there because in the arid zone, you may have more calcium because it's not being leached away by all the rain, mm-hmm. but you don't have as much water. And so there you, there's a really fine trade-off between those two things that matches the, the humidity water gradient. Oh, that's so strange. And so we think that's it. why you have the different shell shapes in these, in these different places. So what is... In, okay, okay. So... Um, I, so, so in, in, uh, in turtles, I mean, clearly they're like, their shells attached. And I know that's a completely different like group of animals that we're not, you know, snails are not in, like turtles, um, other than having shells. Uh, but so what is like, are, are snails, uh, attached or, or can they, can they exit the shell? Like what is inside of the shell? Is it a hollow space? Does it have compartments? Um, yeah. Yep. So here, here you go. Uh, you actually set me up really well for another story. Uh, so the, the snail body itself, the animal, uh, you can think of it as like a, a slug. Okay. Because right? a, a slug is a snail out of shell. Um, so imagine that animal kind of shaped a little differently, but put inside an, an empty snail shell. So if you, if you look at the snail shell from the outside, um, the inside is all hollow. There aren't any separate compartments, at least in any of the species that I study. Okay. Uh, and the, the, um, the, there's really only one place where the snail actually attaches to the shell itself. And that's up at the, the peak of the, of the, um, of the, of the, of the, uh, the shell. And so kind of way up at the, at the top there, it's called the, the apex. Um, this is the one place where it's attached. And so uh, I also study predation, predator-prey interactions, and the predators of these snails are the Galapagos mockingbirds. And uh, these guys are really interesting. They're very intelligent. Uh, but what they do when they're hunting for snails is they kind of dig around in the leaf litter for the most part. They'll grab one and grasp it by the aperture, so the opening. Sure. And they'll find a good rock or or some really hard substance, 
and they'll whack it against that rock a few times. <laughs> okay, that's pretty awesome. Break yeah. off the tip. Then what they do is they flip it around, grab that broken off apex, which is attached to the animal, and they can just flick off the whole, whole shell in oh. one swift movement. And then they can eat the animal soft body and not have to worry about the shell. Oh, I absolutely love hearing about animals uh, using different tools or just uh, knowing how to do different things like that. It sounds like those people in, in we're, we're originally from Houston, so we're not too off base saying something like this, but um, like like people at crawfish boils who can just before you even realize it and just bah, like they empty out the whole thing, just like flip the shell off and you're like, okay. <laughs> On a on a super similar note, not not a uh, not a bird like smashing the thing on the thing, but um, I remember one time it was like 2015. I was in like stop and go traffic in Houston, leaving my job at a nature center, and and uh, there was this thud next to the car, and I look, and there is a box turtle that had been dropped on the ground and like broken open. And then a bird came down and was like eating the turtle. And I'm like, wait a second, you sly boy. Did you do that on purpose? And of course he did. Of course, it like flew up, dropped a turtle. So just. That's like kind of sad, but so cool. Right. I mean, like, I mean, you do with what you got. You, you figure out what you can with what you got. But like that poor turtle, you know. Birds are smart, man. Imagine spending all your life moving all slow and stuff. And then like. You get swept into the sky and dropped. What the? What a way to go! What a what a maybe maybe a bit of a thrill ride, honestly. Ain't even use no tools. <laughs> Just let gravity and concrete do the job. I mean, that's kind of a tool. Good use of gravity. Then that turtle was an island on the road. <laughs> um. So the the pine birds are the main predators as far as we understand them. Mm -hmm. uh, we find um, these piles of broken snail shells. Structure as, is what you end up with after a mockingbird attacks these snails. And we also see in a lot of places, the snails tend to match their backgrounds in terms of coloration really well. And mockingbirds are the only predators that would be uh, uh, would be influenced by color and when they're when they're foraging for these things. Um, there are other predators that are possible, but they're probably not hunting visually uh, for these snails. And so we think they're why the the snails are matching their colors in a lot of places. So we think it's those mockingbirds. Uh, so in terms of matching the color, then I mean, are we talking? Um, I hate to say drab when I'm talking about the greens and browns and tans and stuff because. But that's just what people typically say. But I'm like, oh, those are pretty too. Um, but is that what we're talking? Is a lot of like, you know, greens and browns and tans and that sort of thing? Or do you, are there brighter colorations or? Not in these snails. Uh, well, I mean, oh, okay, let me take that back. So there are some species that are just bright, brilliant white. Uh, and mm -hmm. then there are others that are jet black, that are just so black. They look like they're made out of velvet. Oh, wow. Uh, but yeah, so that's really cool. Uh, but in between, you do have a lot of a lot of browns and grays, uh, and tans, and that's pretty much it. Um, there's some, there's a couple of species that have some kind of variegation and coloration, but that is between like brown and white modeling. Uh, but the um, 
there's really nothing beyond that, like what you see with the Hawaiian land snails, which are really pretty and, and gorgeous in coloration. You don't you don't see that here yeah. in Galapagos. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, um, are how how are their populations looking? Uh, it depends on the species. So there are a number of species that are doing just fine, uh, and if you go to the right spot, you can find thousands of them. Uh, but that is more the exception. Uh, than the rule for it's it's a bit of an unfortunate fact of history that the places where we have the most uh, people and where the islands are most affected by human um, habitat degradation are the places where we had the most snails to begin with those are the islands that are kind of the mid range in age the really young islands mm-hmm. are untouched but they only have a few species. The really old islands are untouched, but they only have a few species. It's that middle range age islands that had a ton of species. And those are the ones that have the human populations. Uh, and they were also concentrated in the humid zone. And that humid zone is essentially gone on Santa Cruz, which had at one point 24 different species of snails. Uh, and most of them, or at least half of them, were in the, the humid zone. Um, in that area, we we just so at, at a certain elevation and above in on Santa Cruz, we see no snails anywhere, uh, and and we're not entirely sure why they have just entirely disappeared. Um, part of it is because the habitat has changed, no doubt. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are pl- places in the humid zone of Santa Cruz where nobody has ever really influenced the the landscape it's pretty native uh and untouched but the snails are gone from those places too so we really don't know exactly why they disappeared the way they did um, but a lot of them have declined from that island is is climate anything to do so like i've i've heard of um you know cases in like let's say let's say hawaii where where you have birds that typically have lived at the higher elevations in in mountain um, that are susceptible to uh, diseases from mosquitoes. And then as temperature changes uh, higher and higher up annually, that disease is able to spread higher and higher up, basically until birds are kind of just off of the mountain, so to speak. Is is that any kind of, uh, re- is there any resemblance from that to, to, to something like that here? Probably. Uh, there are some populate, some species on the smaller islands where we have this really nice history of of some of these the history of some of these um, snail species from the um, California Academy of Sciences expedition in 1905-06, I believe, uh, when they went and they surveyed the islands pretty extensively and collected a lot of things. And this is where a lot of um, the the first record, records of these different snail species come from, uh, and we know that on some of the smaller islands. The snails were found all the way down uh, the, the slope towards the ocean or, or like halfway down or, or whatever. And now if you can find them at all, they're only at the very top, at the highest elevations under a few rocks. And that's it. Sure. Uh, and so we think that climate change has impacted at least some of the species. Um, but on top of that, Galapagos is a really dynamic place. Yeah, And so they're also influenced by El Nino events uh, really strongly. And when you have El Nino years, um, it's like there's just a ton of variation 
that is introduced into the system. And a lot of these snails probably don't do all that well with that variation. Uh, if it gets too wet in an area, they may um, be unable to survive. If it gets too dry in another area, they may be unable to survive. And um, we we think that a lot of the declines happened within just a handful of years in the 70s. And that overlaps pretty well with one of the biggest El Nino events in history um, in Galapagos. And so that may have have been kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. Sure. Um, because that was also the time when there were a lot of people that were showing up and transforming the landscape. And yeah. so we think there's just too many things piled on to these snails and they just couldn't handle it. So, so both, both like geographically, um, uh, climatically, um, uh, biologically, like the Galapagos strikes me as super tricky, but I'm also thinking that socially it's gotta be super tricky because, because of, of local people and, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, rightful, rightful claim, of you know Ecuador and and um, so much of the islands being used as national park and um, it also being a tourism hotspot and a biodiversity hotspot. It's a research hotspot. It's it just seems like it's a hotspot of hotspots. Um, also geographically, like literally a hotspot. Uh, but um, how how do you see that? How do you see that in your work? Uh, and how do you how do you work within those confines? Because I imagine that that's kind of um, something that you have to constantly be, you know, at least a little bit aware of. It is really challenging for sure. Um, there are, there are political considerations. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very sensitive place. So we have to, to um, put a lot of effort into uh, maintaining a good relationship with the national park and the government of Ecuador uh, and also the local research community in Galapagos. And we um, also work with uh, the local researchers that are um, that are are located there all the time. Uh, we have really close relationships with a lot of the park guards and the um, park officials in Galapagos. Uh, and you, you need a lot, all of these connections in order to do anything useful in Galapagos. Um, and uh, we've also made a lot of friends over the years um, with people that are living there permanently. Um, but generally speaking, um, it's, it's, in some ways, it's really hard. Um, there are a lot of strengths to working down there because there is a, an expectation that if you're down there as a scientist, you're going to be doing some research. And yeah. so people are not very hostile mm-hmm. to you doing science down there. Um, we're able to talk to the landowners in the humid zone, agricultural places, and, you know, the different park offices on the different islands. And we're able to get the permits that we need to do a lot of the survey work that we do. Um, and, and it's a, it's a give and take, right? So we, we also do a lot of education down there on how ecology works and evolutionary processes, um, um, in, in terms of, of the um, tourists that are in the area as well, and also uh, local schools on the mainland and in Galapagos. Um, and so it really takes, it takes a village to do this type of science. Um, and luckily that village is there in Galapagos. Uh, but it does have its own challenges. It's hard to get around. 
you know, yeah. these islands are pretty isolated. Yeah. So, so, you know, after, um, I mean, do you, do you see, do you see any other, you know, questions that you want to be exploring either in relation to the snails or, or different studies that you want to take on, um, whether it be in the Galapagos or mm -hmm. elsewhere? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, my, my colleague, Christine Parent, <clears throat> excuse me, um, she is, um, focusing much of her work on the Galapagos themselves. Uh, and so I'm continuing with, with a lot of that work as well. Um, but our attention is also uh, turning towards the mainland um, because you have these, these same snails, the, their, their relatives are still found on the mainland in relatively similar habitats. But those snails have also colonized a new type of island-like habitat. And those are the alpine environments of the Andes, which um, you have this, this uh, movement from low elevation, hot, dry habitat, just like you have with Galapagos along the coast. They're very similar habitats in a lot of ways. But these snails have also made it to some of the mountaintops as you go upslope into the Andes. And so we want to know how they've been able to, to move upslope or, or stay in a particular habitat yeah. as those uh, mountains have uplifted. And so that the new type of island-like habitat there that we're studying. Uh, and in addition to that, I am starting this new project more locally because I'm located in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, which is not known for its islands per se. Yeah, yeah, not uh, But they do exist if you know where to look. Uh, <laughs> and the, the island-like habitat that I'm studying here are cities. Ooh. And so as cities are formed, you have this little island of habitat that is very different from the surrounding landscape. There's lots of cement. It gets hotter. It's yeah. drier. Um, the winters are a little bit more mild. The summers are a little bit hotter. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a place that's very different from other places nearby. But yet many cities are very similar to one another. Yeah, and so we're actually studying how some of the the things that are native to this area have been able to evolve to fit into this urban landscape, um, and and other while well, other species have been unable to do so, and so we're we're studying that as well. Oh, that's so interesting. That's so interesting. It well, I feel like my whole perspective on like like cities and things are like kind of just morphed now. I'm gonna be like, oh, look at that island there. <laughs> um yeah uh, so and that actually before you ask the next thing um that that reminds me of another little little tidbit yeah um, aside um because yeah like like um like i said uh, you know cities are, are islands in some ways but they're also is very similar to some of the local habitats in ways that you wouldn't necessarily expect um, so up in, in Eastern Canada, there was a study that was done um, in one of the cities over there that found that um, the plant species in, um, in, in that city uh, closely resembled some of the cliff habitats and rocky outcropping habitats oh, weird. of the, the local environment. Which huh. kind of makes sense because yeah. you know, cliffs are dry, they've got exposed rock, which, you know, cement is a lot like an exposed rock face yeah. in a lot of ways. And so it was really interesting to see that that study when it came out. That's really interesting. It's like a, 
a, a replacement rocky outcrop, exposed granite kind of thing. That's that's interesting, huh? Where we're, uh, I'm in uh, St. Cloud, Minnesota, and it's called the Granite City, and there's a lot of like granite bedrock that that pokes out and stuff. And so now I'm kind of just thinking. I wonder if walking around downtown and then going uh, to a local park to the rocky outcrops, if you could do some compare like species by species comparison. That'll be yeah. a completely That's unofficial a um, thing that I look at this summer for, for no reason other than just to do it out of curiosity. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, if you want to know what sort of species are found in the urban landscape, think about the most disturbed natural areas in the surrounding landscape. And that's where you'll find a lot of those same species. Sure, yeah. So here in Nebraska, um, we have prairie to the west of us. Uh, and that landscape is pretty stable in a lot of ways. Uh, but in some places, it's really sandy and you have these sandy blowouts where it's just this open sandy pit mm -hmm. and it's, it's regularly disturbed by the wind. And the plants that are there in living in that have sandy habitat, that's what you find here in the city. That's the only place that you, you find uh, those types of species. That's so interesting. Uh before before I ask the uh, the last question that we had, I'm just curious: Is there anything that we um, um, maybe skipped past that was worth uh, uh, revisiting, or if there's you know, anything that's popped up that I mean, it's it's totally fine if things are out of order because you know we can do that later. We can swap it around; it's no big deal. Uh, well, um, let's see here. I uh, when I talk to people about islands and my job and, and yeah. what I what I do um, one thing that I do like to tell them is you know why why I think it's important to do this and a lot of times this sort of um, this you know what it is that I'm, I'm working on and what I'm trying to understand is really how evolution proceeds Mm -hmm. and how different species interact with one another and how communities can build. Um, but I think one thing that I'm starting to think about more and more nowadays is what we, how what I'm doing can, can give me hope about the world. Sure. Um, I think that's something that we need a bit more of right now. And my little story of hope uh, was actually happened the last time I was in Galapagos, which was actually a couple of years ago in 2017. Um, but we were um, walking through uh, San Cristobal, which is one of the oldest islands, uh, and it has a human population. Uh, and so it's seen a lot of declines of snails. And one thing that I, that we always do when we're out there is we try to find populations of snails that we haven't seen in a long time. Mm -hmm. And most of the time those searches fail, you know, we don't find things um, because they're gone pretty definitively. Um, at least that's the way it seems for a lot of them. But we were, we were looking for one of the species, um, Acatelinus, and that one is, is one of the, the really pretty species. Um, it has a really kind of pretty conical shape, uh, and it has one of the few instances of this kind of really cool variegated patterning. Um, I think it's called striation. 
and it's a kind of like mahogany and tan streaked snail with a little bit of green flecking in there. Really cool, really pretty. It had only been seen alive a couple of different times. Uh, and we only had in museums like three shells. Um, one of them was a juvenile shell fragment, and that's it. And we've been looking for them since the 70s, and at least, you know, malacologists have been looking, and we haven't found any alive. And we were walking down a trail um, that the park guards use um, to uh, patrol the, the park boundary. And to our right is agricultural land, and to our left was the, the native vegetation slope all the way down a few miles to the ocean. And we were walking in a line, there were four of us, and it was in the last place. And we were just kind of poking around looking as we walked. And there was this big rock on the, on the right side, and we all passed it. And I was just walking past it, I was about halfway past, and I see this tiny little thing clinging to the side of the rock. And I look closely and I'm like, oh, hey, pristine. You know, and, and my, my colleagues, I, I called them over and I said, I think, is this, is this an academic? And Christine looks at me, she goes, get out. She pushes <laughs> me over. She was so excited. We found a living individual. And nice. we spent a couple of hours at that site. We found a whole population. Uh, with adults, little oh, wow. baby juveniles, all kinds of snails in this spot. And it was it was one of the best moments uh, in Galapagos where we were actually able to find a good population. And my colleagues went back in 2018 and they found a couple more populations. And we've been looking in a place that we looked in a new place that hadn't been searched before. And so I think there's always hope for a lot of these species that we think might be gone, especially the little ones mm -hmm. uh, in terms of their populations. You may find a whole bunch of snails in one spot and then nothing 100 meters down the trail, even though the habitat looks the same. Um, and so I think there's a lot more hope than we than we tend to think of there being. Um, yeah. And so yeah, that's, that's like the, the best part of of my job and I think that that's something that um, a lot of what we do is is field biologists um, I think it's it's worth talking about those moments yeah no there's a lot of bad right now right I feel like um, I feel like I've said this a lot lately but I feel like conservation um, jobs they're they have become increasingly a career path of like emergency you know, everything's kind of like this, a dire thing or what, or what the time frame, or we have to do this now or, and, and that's hard. <laughs> that's hard. Uh, if, you know, if, if your world begins to be shaped by, you know, that, that loss and not looking for those moments. And so I think, I think that's great, you know, and, and, and it's like, in some ways it's, it's exactly about the snail, but in other ways, it's, it's not necessarily about the snail. It's about biodiversity and it's about species and it's about um um you know things persisting and i know I, I i love i love stories like that well i just want to say thank you very much uh for inviting me on to to uh to chat with you guys i i really enjoyed it um it's it's a lot of fun to talk about these things yeah um 
as like talking to any scientist, you get them going on their research and they're happy to chat for hours. So <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it wasn't too hard to, to do this by any means. Yeah, I really, really had fun. So thank you very much for the opportunity. Yeah, yeah, I'm just I'm happy I'm happy you were able to do it, and and I really think I really think that people are are just gonna love this too because there's so much in what we've just uh, put into an hour and 17 minutes and, and so much unexpected stuff. And like, you know, people normally, they just see snails and like, okay, whatever snails, but I have a feeling like people are going to be more interested in snails now. That's my hope. So <laughs> there's a lot of cool ones out there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, you take care. And, um, and like I said, we'll, we'll be in touch on what we're looking at for dates and timelines and things. And our, and this this whole talk of like, you know, cities as islands and stuff. I'm realizing technically you could have like, you know, like I've got muscles on me muscles. Like you can have islands on islands on islands on islands. And like, where does it end? Is the universe an island? Guns shoot islands. Oh my God. Uh, I dipped a cookie in my milk and a crumb fell off. <laughs> I created an island. I is, am an artist. Is the cream in an Oreo an island? Yes. <laughs> How much do you want to bet that when it's getting to these parts in the episode, people are just hitting skip 30? <laughs> um, before, before we go for the day, uh, we, want to leave, we want to leave with this parting gift. And that is um, a list of other types of islands that we uh, that we figured out. Okay. The sun. The sun is an island. Whenever you throw a plastic cup in in the sink and it and it floats, it's an island. It's an island. The uh, the bald patch forming on top of my head is an island. Whenever you blow bubbles. Wait. Oh, like the bubble is an island. Yep. Oh. Whoa. A sled is an island. How is a sled an island? A sled because surrounded just... by snow. Oh, okay, okay, okay. What if, uh, what if, um, what if you're riding on a horse in the desert? Are you both one island? I'm or are you two separate island. islands? You can ride an island. A Boeing 747. I'm gonna get a license plate frame that says my other car is an island. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) Uh, The hole in the center of a donut. No, the jelly in a jelly filled donut is an island. My nipples an island. Are the are the bones in your body an island? Would that count? No. No. Okay. Uh. Hmm. A parasitic worm in your belly is an island. Your your uh, planner box is an island. A cloud is an island. Yeah. Totally is. Mall of America is an island. Oh my god. (laughs) 
banana and a bowl of apples. The banana pound cake that I just baked is an island. Oh. A shoe on the middle of the living room floor is an island. Your couch is an island. My cat is an island. Your yard uh, she might be island. too big to be considered an island. She might be a continent. Oh. Well, aren't continents just islands? Yeah. What if you have an island and a lake on an island? Double stuff island. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, we'll be done. Ugh. A big thank you again to our guest for the day, Dr. Andrew Kramer. You can find him on Twitter at Andy Kramer. The Kramer is K-R-A-E-M-E-R. You should also check out his website. It details some of his research, uh, publications, his teaching, a lot of cool pictures. Um, that's andrewckramer.wordpress.com. We'll, we'll be sure to link to it in the episode notes as well. Big thank you again to our supporters, our, our members who... Uh, make this whole endeavor sustainable. Um, remember, you can become a member at patreon.com slash thewildlife, or you can make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash thewildlife. Uh, remember, we, uh, you know, we've we always been a, a member-supported podcast and, and blog, but uh, we are venturing into new territory, uh, officially a nonprofit organization with the, the mission to interrupt barriers of exclusion that work against um, black, indigenous, and people of color through free educational content, community programs, uh, funding for professional development, and uh, gear, and um, experiences. And so uh, please, please, uh, uh, you know, support. Um, the, you know, the more support we can get, especially in, in this uh, you know, initial period, uh, the more we can do. You know, we got to get these initiatives off the ground somehow. And, um, um, you know, we can cover conference fees, field trip funds, uh, binoculars and field guides for youth. Um, there's, there's so much that we can do and there's so much work to do. And um, we, really, uh, we really hope that um, oh, we can get your support. If everybody... I just, I'm just thinking, if everybody who's listening to this right now became a member at $1 a month, uh, the amount that we could do, the the amount of people that we could help, um, <laughs> it's just, uh, it's awesome. It's amazing. So um, um, please consider patreon.com slash wildlife or paypal.me slash the wildlife. And wherever you're listening, uh, don't hesitate to write a review. Okay. See you next time. <laughs>